0: So this is from A Course in Miracles. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built up against it. So tonight I would like to explore with you just uh, this one word, which actually has two components to it. And the word is thanksgiving. (laughs) So, first story. Uh, My first uh, teacher, uh, this is when I was in Nepal in the late 60s. His name was uh, Lama Yeshi. And he had a quality that was uh, absolutely remarkable. And it was very well distinguished in two activities that he would uh, undertake. And the first one was, whenever uh, you met him or saw him, is that he would uh, bow to you, no matter what it was, and he would say thank you. That was his uh, one aspect. That was it. Was always present. It was just that that sense of it wasn't. It could in a sense. I was going to say you could be in a tree, because it's the way he looked at the world. Was just saying. Thank you. And that all things that he touched, there was that receiving and recognizing that receiving, which is really that of a, a, a wisdom aspect. The second aspect was also, when he met you, if he got to know you a little bit, he would say, oh, you were my mother before. <laughs> and, and in this case, of course, he did love his mother. I mean, I know there are some cases, but, <laughs> but in this case, he really loved his mother. And you had that sense, that heart feeling of that uh, he, in his mind, again, that uh, somehow uh, there was this connection. And that was with every person he met. So this word thanks... You know, it's simple. I think it actually comes out of really the heart of wisdom. Uh, because it has been through some kind of process, some kind of refining that has this sense of clarity of what it is that's going on. And we talk about this practice as a a practice of uh, purification. That in a sense, uh, we sit here and we, I mean, nothing's going on here. Just nothing's going on. (laughs) And yet, there's almost a magnetism to those parts of ourselves uh, that interfere. Uh, Interfere with this clarity, uh, this sense of well-being. And so in a sense, these things are pulled out of us. And, and uh, very much like Anna's story last night of kind of being on the floor of the woods and, and experiencing kind of the, uh, the fear and the drama, uh, the old stories, uh, the, all those things that somehow they have these little fish hooks that somehow pull and actually hook into our flesh and pull. And the job of this practice is the unhooking, the untangling of the tangles. And so it gets a little messy. talked about the kind of the the hindrances that come up, you know, the sense of you sit here and there's this uh, tremendous amount of, uh, what, uh, wanting in our lives, wanting things to be this way or that way, this constant desire, which pulls us out of the simplicity of the present. Insidious. And it's such subtle hooks, you know that come along and grab us and take us away. Sometimes into the future or sometimes from the past. But it holds us away from the wisdom of presence. There are other times when, you know, this uh, sense of, you know, it may be a back pain, a knee pain, Uh, and then there's some kind of association with it that somehow we have to fix it, and it comes from something that happened, you know, such and such a story ago, and that's why it's like this. And boom, hooked again. But this time, it's in the aversive mind of pushing and getting rid of that somehow that uh, we need to somehow do battle with that that we don't like. There's also this state of, you know, we sit here and there's, there's tiredness. And I think in our culture I uh, uh, honor rest uh, simply because the intensity of the kind of, uh, <laughs> maybe it's the cultural <laughs> hooks of aversion and, and desire that are so powerful and they are so immediately fulfilled that the forces are so strong, and that when we come here, there has to be just this simply this ability to to, to listen to yourself again, to listen to your body, to rest, uh, to take stock. but then at some point that resting and this in the sense of uh, uh, kind of balance of The energetics of both uh, the body and the mind find a balance. But then there are things we resist, you know, uh, things that in our lives come and kind of hold us in captivity. And what happens? We conk out, we go to sleep, we fog out, Uh we. uh, there's. Some kind of resistance against it. There's also this wonderful planning mind that is so seductive, you know, of just let's make a movie about tomorrow. you leave here. And if you stay long enough, there's this, uh, because you're not here, it creates this anxiousness, this kind of fear, and then that creates kind of a, a sense of restlessness or worry that holds us in captivity for periods of time. And any of these things, if we stay long in them, then there is this deep, fundamental unsteadiness that simply is that we doubt ourselves. We doubt our capacity to uh, recognize awakening. And these are all places that are kind of the pitfalls where we forget the capacity to say thank you, uh, to honor the, this infinitesimal, this very thin line, we believe, between future and past. What happens right now? And this practice is, first of all, knowing how much we're not there. But then at some point, it becomes the recognition that this is where I live. I actually don't live in those other things. I struggle in those other places. The Buddha talked about this first noble truth and Robert talked about this, this uh, complexity of identification and the creation of, this suffering that happens. And the Buddha talked about it as one of the descriptions was two arrows. One arrow was the body itself and this thing called samsara or the cyclic nature of things that things are born there for a while. Uh, in their full bloom, and then get old, get sick, die. That arrow is what we all hold. But there's a second arrow. And this is the one the Buddha was talking about. And this arrow is one we can pull out, and it is the psychological. It's this place that we recognize the nature of struggle and how it happens and how it also... Uh, We are not that. You are more than the struggle. And this place, this thank you, uh, is... It's no place in the future. It is simply the recognition of uh, why we train ourselves here in the body so much is that it's about the wholeness. So it's the whole body It is the capacity to hold all your feelings. It's really the the technicolor of life, uh, the richness of things. Uh, It is to see this thought process in its uh, creativity and its wonder and its poetry and its... um, sometimes madness, that you're more than that. There is this other. And this other is this willingness to listen in this stillness, this deep sensing of that in you that's unchangeable. that this knowing that when all is surrendered, there's still this that knows, that holds. It has no past, no future. And it's never been held. So our willingness to, in a sense, it's a kind of surrender. And that surrender is fearless. The past like a Teflon mind doesn't stick. In the anticipation is released on the spot. And then the clarity that exists. There is not a needing to seek or to know. Uh, It is all simply about the freedom. And that we begin to choose freedom moment after moment. And if we can keep doing that, then this thank you comes naturally. It's not something that has to have some big bang It's already present. This thank you, that ability to surrender. Leave the struggle to struggle. That there is an informing that has to do with this kind of listening. And that kind of listening is the strengthening of this simple state called trust. And we think of trust, usually it has to be about something or someone, some bigger force. But this is a simple trust. It's about a trust in presence, that that, that there is enoughness happening. No matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant in experience, there is that enoughness. And we can trust that right up until uh, actually the body will disintegrate. It will break apart. That's its nature. That is one of the arrows. But that trust is unaffected by it. Actually, the second part of this is about the giving. And so this one factor is really, uh, I see this thankfulness comes out of the clarity and the seeing clearly, the nature of conditioning and uh, what we can begin in this flow, this river of being that we can begin to rely on. And it actually has to do with the flow, not some solid thing. That it comes to this giving. And this giving is. has to do with the arrow. Actually has to do with both arrows. It was great. I had my, my daughter was here today and um, how tender the heart is. You know, no matter what the circumstances. But I was thinking back a story of, that uh, still holds me. And it has to do back in, uh, when I was practicing in Asia. I was 20 years old and I, I came from kind of uh, your privileged, sort of privileged background it also uh, turned into a street kid, kind of I had an address um, I remember when they tried to draft me was a uh, on Hayton Clayton a dumpster, where I kept my stuff behind the dumpster and recently, an old friend of mine uh, sent me two letters that during that period i 'd come to San Francisco. And uh, their mother died this last year. And it was two letters from, uh, well, I got one from my mother and two from my father that I never got. You know? And I was seeing her T-shirt Rebel on there. And uh, I, I recognized that how, you know, in, this, in these times, coming out of a very staunch Republican family Conservative, and in the 60s, how um, radical and forceful, in a sense, I had to be. But looking back and seeing the price of that, and what you know, these people who just wanted the best for me. But for me, I had to kind of shove it in their face, saying, this is, you're not enough, this is not enough. You know? So I was doing these retreats like this, one after another, and this was in India. And at that time, uh had come uh, to India and was at one of these retreats, and what was happening was, I would sit, and my practice I could get very clear. But then at some point, I would begin to tell the I would get begin to tell these stories, and these stories were writing a letter to my father, kind of explaining, you know, all all the reasons. And I kept, over and over again, these kept coming in my mind. And so it seemed like every afternoon when I'd get a little, you know, I'd have a lot of concentration in the morning, but I had my kind of a weak period in the afternoon where I got kind of a little sloppy. You know this one. And then next thing you know, you know, this thing had come along and, you know, this was like big fish hook. Oomph! More like a grappling hook <laughs> would kind of grab into me. And hold me. And so, I, at the end of summer retreat, I was sitting in this room with Ram Dass, and I was telling him, you know, my father was kind of abusive, and he was an alcoholic, and uh, uh, we had fought uh, ever since I was quite young, and. Uh, I told him about this, just how it kept coming up. And he said, well, maybe you should go and have darshan with him. Yeah. And uh, the word uh, darshan is, is, it simply means seeing, you know, going to see. And traditionally, it's you know, talked about going to see a saint. You go and you have darshan with that uh, being. He said, well, maybe you should have darshan with your father. So sometime, I, sometime in spring that year, I took that kind of in and uh, held that. And I would try to do metta. And, you know, it just was so, there was so much pain and complication around it. And at that time, I really didn't know the difference between guilt and remorse. And there was a lot of guilt in there, a lot of kind of personalizing. So I was up in the in the mountains, and uh, as the story goes, I decide I should go back and see him. And the advice he gave me said, go and have Darshan, Darshan with him, but don't stay too long. <laughs> so very wise. <laughs> so I go and I decide, one of the things was I wanted to go home and... I, you know, was this flaky long haired, you know, kind of t-shirt, flip-flop uh, dude, you know. <laughs> and so I went and I had this little tailor in a town of Kulu Valley in Manali make me a three-piece suit, which he took an old magazine that was totally ripped up, and we pulled it out, you know, and we found this picture of, of this guy in this three-piece suit. So we bought some Chinese corduroy, and, uh, and so he proceeded. It took him, I don't know, months to make this corduroy soup. And I remember I went over, and, and my friend Sultram Aliona, uh, she, she sort of took these scissors, and I don't know, I had sort of a semi-cut. <laughs> a oh, Great cut. But it was, it was good enough. But what was really great was this tailor. He tried so hard. It was really beautiful. But he didn't use the same color threads. <laughs> <laughs> so you had kind of these, you know, as long as you didn't look too close. And so I went back and I thought, well, now I'm going to look like he wants me to look. <laughs> you know? Kind of three-piece suit, corduroy suit on and you know, and uh, and I went back and uh, there was such intention, because I was holding this whole thing from, from this practice and how I just got stuck in that. And I went and it was, and I was there three days. And the thing that the first day I got was all this practice that I had done was suddenly... I was looking at someone, not my father, but someone who had suffered deeply. And that the darshan was not about me, but it was about this man's suffering and how he had coped with that suffering. And that he wanted me to be something that he wasn't. Different. And it broke my heart. And I suddenly saw uh, uh, that all my protection wasn't there. He didn't actually see me. It was all right. I saw him. And within a couple months, I returned to Asia. And it changed me because it was like a release of... You know, like a block in there of my heart. And so this giving part is that, in a sense, we have to clear up our own uh, uh, our own woundings. But these woundings are special woundings. Every wound that you have, you know, every betrayal you've had, is that that is the giving. It is the relative that has given to you. And it is thing that has softened the heart and gives that golden glow. The wisdom, the clarity, that thankfulness is only one side of the equation. The other side is the fragility uh, of these two arrows and that our responsibility... Uh, to own it specifically. Uh, be uh, really fearless. Uh, fearless in the heart. And I know it's an untangling process and it's, there's a huge complexity here and I'm not saying that one of the uh, limitations I see to practice, is that uh, so much is done internally, and there's so much we can do, but we really have to touch the world. Uh, We have to speak to the world. The world has to speak to us, whether it's a single person, you know, uh, it could be a therapist, it could be a friend, uh, but somewhere we have to uh, allow this uh, to be reflected back And in that reflection, uh, there is the germination of what this really golden heart of practice is ultimately all about. I like to hold the, and for my own life the, the mistakes I've made we've all, you know, there's a wonderful story of uh, a Zen master ask, you know, about life. And he said, oh, life. One mistake after another. <laughs> no. No. You take the risk. No. And this is not about turning away and in a sense, about some aloofness. It's actually this ability to uh, kind of enter the fire, uh, the fire of love, the fire of contact, the fire of connection, and probably be burned. But at the same time, there is this power of giving, uh, the power of compassion and uh, in deep uh, deep resonance with the arrows, ours and that of others, and the balance of this practice of being able to in a sense feel the drama of life and yet have this sword of wisdom, this capacity uh, to recognize anywhere along the continuum, that freedom uh, is half-breath away. So in a sense, there is the capacity to enter the fire and not be burned. I like this term, the middle way. Sense between the extremes. And I see it also in this uh, waking up to this uniqueness, this thankfulness, uh, this opportunity, the preciousness of life. And being able to, uh, in a sense, deeply recognize and feel that. And it's not about circumstances. It's not about whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's simply about the fact that the capacity to see and hear and smell and taste and feel, think, that. That's the whole gift. And that this idea of freedom, enlightenment, that somehow it's not out there. It's not somewhere else. It's actually the exactness, preciseness of mindfulness. That mindfulness in itself is actually, it's a moment of deconditioning, but it's also a moment of freedom. Pleasant or unpleasant, when that mind in its wakefulness knows what's happening. It liberates the isolation. Maybe just for a hundredth of a second. But as we begin to put more emphasis on those hundredths of a second, then the loosening of the, the, these blinders that we put on, they get loosened. And it's not that we ignore the struggle because the struggle is part of it, being here. But we begin to put our emphasis, our emphasis on moments, of complete release, complete relaxation, complete, uh, in a sense, one taste, non-dual. It's not separate. Your wholeness. And the effect of that Is the heart no longer in its constriction, in its needing to have its way, or it's, you know, ruled by its fears? uh, Your attachment is actually this this word metta. We have the idea of conventional love. And somehow uh, it's a relative deal, you know, about you love me, I love you, and um, let's make a deal about how that's going to work. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that is not meta. It has the thread of all the old loves. It has, you know, a subtle manipulation, subtle needs. You know, they say if you want to look, if there's attachment there, it's not metta. But metta is the state of being uh, in a sense that this giving that's undifferentiated. It doesn't qualify. It doesn't categorize. It simply is a state of being that everything that's exposed to it is felt in love. So Thanksgiving, this is what is love. This is four to eight-year-olds. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. When someone loves you the way they say your name is different. You know that your name that th- that your name is safe in their mouth. <laughs> Love is that first feeling you feel before all the bad stuff gets in the way. <laughs> Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. (laughs) Love is when someone hurts you and you get so mad, but you don't yell at them because you know it would hurt their feelings. Love is when mommy makes coffee for daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. (laughs) Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. If you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. Oh, this is good. When you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared they won't love you anymore, but then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes. <laughs> and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> That's Lauren, age four. I let my big sister pick on me because my mom says she only picks on me because she loves me. So I pick on my baby sister because I love her. <laughs> you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, You should say it a lot. People forget. So, let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 25, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.